if you are located outside of the European Union, the United Kingdom and or Switzerland, then you need an authorized representative. So I have a good news, you have found it with Easy Medical Device. And if you are also in need of an importer in Europe and in Switzerland, then contact us definitely at info at easymedicaldevice.com. I-N-F-O at easymedicaldevice.com and I'm sure we can help you. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy Podcast. I am Munir Alazuzi, a medical device expert specialized on quality and regulatory affairs. My mission is to help you learn how to place a compliant medical device on the market. For that, I share with you my experience and the one of others on this podcast. Are you ready for your dose of regulation and standards today? Okay, so let the show begin. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Here is Munir Alazuzi from easymedicaldevice.com. And today we will talk about your transition from a class one product to a class one air products. So I have a lot of people asking me what is class one air. So mainly this is the new classification that was created by uh, on the UMDR, which is class one for reprocessing. But we'll talk about that uh, more uh, in depth with our our guest today. So our guest today is uh, Todd Vidas Caritonas, who is the principal at Test Labs. So Todd Vidas, welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Thanks, Munir. Welcome. Um, yeah, it's nice to be here. Quite excited to talk about it. Um, the topic is quite close to what we're doing. So, yeah. Exactly. So, me. exactly. So, uh, when we discussed, you, you, you explained to me exactly what you are doing and say, okay, maybe this topic can be interesting for, for our audience because, uh, we have some customers that have to do this transition from class one to class one air. And that can be maybe a good point to explain what should be there, what should they be ready for, what should they create, what should they do to make this transition as smooth as possible. Um, but as before to start, maybe just can you introduce yourself or a bit uh, explaining more about you and yeah. what you are doing? Sure. Um, I actually have an engineering background. So I've spent the last eight years developing technologies for healthcare, specifically to do with disinfection. Um, and preventing infections. Um, but at the moment, my main focus is to, yeah, to accelerate market access to medical devices. So provide this objective evidence that you know manufacturers could put into their technical files to to get at, you know their market access. So that's where we focus. So I run a lab essentially, with quite a few scientists to try and support the the medical device industry. Great. Focus on the moment. Great, great. And um, were you hit, if I can say, by this topic of class one to class one air? Was there some customers that were contacting you to help them on that? Yeah, I think uh, specifically because we're specialized in IFE validations and sterilization cycles, disinfection, that's our background. We do a lot of compatibility studies, et cetera. We've realized that we have um, this sort of niche offering to support surgical instrument manufacturers to transition from class one to class one R. And we do get a lot of questions about what is the process, what do you need to do, et cetera. So, so I, I feel that this this is a, quite a timely conversation for us to be having because we spend a lot of time trying to educate the market to raise awareness that there is a way out. You know, last year we went to Medica. We've spoken to over 100 surgical instrument manufacturers and we were getting a lot of questions about, you know, what would be the process you'd follow? What, how long does it take? You know, how fast can I get the data to try and, you know, push my product through the, you know, through the approval? Exactly. So, yeah. So uh, ju just maybe to reiterate uh, what is uh, what is happening actually. So uh, before we had our um, surgical instruments that were class one, now they are moving to class one air. I just want to reinforce again that the only 
um, products, medical devices that are moving to class one air. They are reusable surgical instruments. These are three words, reusable surgical instruments. If one of those words is, is not there, it's not a class one air. So reusable yeah. surgical instruments only. Um, and those products, Mainly, they are used during surgery, like scalpel or scissors or clamps or whatever that are used during the surgery. There is a specific definition on the UMDR where it says uh, uh, when it's uh, for clamping, sewing, cutting, drilling, etc. I mean, there there is all the words that they are using there. So as soon as it is reusable, used for surgery, and it's an instrument, then mainly it's uh, it's falling under that. Um, just also to add an information to that, there was a. I mean, uh, under the new regulation, the UMDR, we have this transition period, which uh, says that um, even after the 26th of May 2021, you can continue to sell your uh, reusable surgical instrument as a class one, which is self-certified until the 26th of May 2024, which was the end of the transition period. Now, recently, we had a vote at the EU Commission, which continues to extend again this uh, this deadline. And now the new deadline is the 31st of December 2028 uh, for this kind of products that are up-classified. We call them the up-classified products because they were from class one and they move to an upper class where now they need a notified body. So um, you, Todvidas, in terms of, of that, so before under class one, uh, they didn't need a notified body self-certified so normally they have to create their technical documentation all right. the risks verify everything i mean do normally everything that should be done to verify that the product is safe now they move to class one air um what what are the differences now if i can say for them and what are the the things that are most difficult for them actually for that i think the focus at the moment is to try and you know validate your I think it starts, sorry, with the intended use and your safety data, but then, you know, you draw your IFU, your instructions for use, and suddenly you need to validate certain steps in that IFU, and that's specifically to do with your reprocessing process. And I think that's what was kind of overlooked previously, and I think most of those manufacturers are now kind of waking up to this realization that suddenly you need to provide a lot, a lot more data, you know, from, from certified accredited labs to show that the process that I've selected for my medical device in instrument, you know, it's safe to do so. And I think that's where there, there is some, some of the confusion. So if you look at your, if you look at your reusable surgical instrument, there's quite a few steps you need to validate to make sure that your, pro you know, your process is safe and, you know, you can't cause infections, et cetera. So, and it starts with your cleaning validation, which is the first step. Um, and then you go through your disinfection validation using whatever automated process, in most cases, wash your disinfection. And then the final, final step is your sterilization validation. So these are the three steps you need to validate to make sure that your product is safe when reprocessing to make sure they wouldn't cause an infection after. And then finally, there's a second thing about your, you know, when you look at your risk benefit analysis, you need to make sure that your product is safe and maintains its function after the reprocessing. So at some point you need to tell the end user at what point you need to stop using the device because it's unsafe to do so. And that's where the material compatibility studies come into play to show that if I were to reprocess this item 50, 100, 1,000 times, is it still safe to use whether it maintains its performance? And, and that's what we do. And that's what you need to follow in order to provide that objective evidence when you submit your technical file to a notifying body. Yeah. And um, I, I had to work with some manufacturers that are class one air now, uh, or that were uh, class one and moved to class one air. Um, 
The funny thing is where well, when we said to them that yes, they have to validate their cleaning, uh, disinfection, sterilization, etc. Uh, they all say to me, yeah, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just placing on my instruction for use what my competitor is doing also. Right, like yeah. I just place the instruction that my competitor is using for the cleaning. So if it's good for them, it's good for me. So maybe this is the idea. Yeah. <clears throat> do you agree with that or? No, 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 we do not. Although by luck, they might kind of stumble across a process that, you know, is applicable to their product. But no, we should, we say you should draw your own, you know, instructions for use and you should look at your own process. I think an example I can give you as well, certain manufacturers obviously have developed a really deep relationship with healthcare. So they would use data uh, from, you know, from their SSD departments, for example. But that is still anecdotal data. It's really difficult to control some of the parameters to make sure that whether the process is still is still fully, fully validated. So, you know, so our advice is you need to engage with a laboratory that's sort of certified and equipped to do those steps. Each, you know, process, you need to validate your cleaning, your disinfection, your sterilization to, to get it right. And then you can rest assured that your instructions is absolutely in line with what you <laughs> expect the end user to do, rather than just kind of guessing and copying from the competitors or um, and hoping that the process will be adequate and safe. And I'm pretty sure the notifying bodies would look for that evidence, whatever the process you prescribed, well, make sure you back that up with, you know, objective evidence. I, I suppose the auditor, when they will arrive to audit your, the company, uh, because uh, just a precision, normally for a class one error, they are not coming to audit specifically the product. They are here more to audit the process of reprocessing. So many that. Right, so yeah. many what they will be doing, they will check this instruction for use and they will check that they have some evidence that uh, the, um, the procedure right. that was mentioned inside is valid for their products mainly. So, and you as a laboratory that is doing those tests, so you are taking this instruction for use and you are really applying this instruction for use on your test to verify that really what is said here is yeah. correct? Well, mostly what we do is actually, <clears throat> we realize that the manufacturers unfortunately don't really have the process. Okay. So we were then advised to say, look, there's standards that you can follow. The standard that we you know that we follow at the moment is ISO 17664, which is processing of healthcare products. And it's specifically tells you what to do, whether you have a, you know, a critical or semi-critical or non-critical you know, device. Um, so you don't have to go and kind of make it up. You can just follow a standard. So that's where we start because most companies have instructions that, as previously mentioned, they either copied or they were kind of, you know, his, his, his historic stuff. So I think if you look at that standard, then you, then you say whether your product is critical or semi-critical. Most of the work or the majority of the work that we do is actually to do with critical or semi-critical products. Um, and then that standard would, you know, kind of swiftly link to whatever the process is, for example, automated disinfection. And there's another standard that they quote, which I believe is ISO 15883 series, which specifically talks then about whether you're using your cleaning process, your disinfection process, whether that's thermal or, <clears throat> or chemical. I think that the part three is even, even talks about endoscopes. So you can definitely narrow that down to your product specifically. And obviously we're talking about reusable surgical instruments here. And most likely than not, you will use a, a automated cleaning process. So there's a standard for that. But regardless of the cycle you use, you need to validate that the process is capable of physically removing soiling and removing protein to clean enough level, you know, for you to then to move to your next stage, which is your, which is your um, the, is sterilization. And that's the whole purpose of what you're trying to prove. And if there's a standard, you know, for a notifying body, they're easy. It's a lot easier for them to say you apply the right standard, either the right stuff, and then you have the right report to back that up. 
I imagine also that um, yeah, here we are in the in the side of the manufacturer. But if we are going in the side of the customer that is buying those products, um, at a certain point they unpack everything and they start to use them. And yeah. then the question is, okay, now I use them, I need to clean them. What should I do? So there is also the question, okay, here is what is written, but I don't have a stabilizer or I don't have these liquids yeah. for that or I don't have that. So this is also the point where. I suppose manufacturers try to also have multiple methodologies available right. to be able to accommodate as much customer as possible. Yeah, I think you're right. And actually you've just touched on the very topic that's quite close to our hearts because we work with healthcare a lot. I think the whole problem of healthcare accepting products and then trying to figure out how do I clean this? How do I prevent infections? Because at least in the UK, it's, it's, a, it's a great problem. And, you know, we need to come up with a solution. Well, you're right. They look at it and say, can I actually reprocess that with the facilities and, you know, equipment that's available to, to, you know, to us or to the healthcare in that case? So manufacturers that try to support that, they're trying to validate across, you know, different processes, et cetera. But more, m m mostly, I think the processes that we are working off at the moment are in line with what the, you know, the NHS in the UK, for example, you know, would use. So most SSD departments would have an automating washing cycle. They would be exposed to whatever the chemicals that you prescribe them to use, and they would have sterilization units specifically for reusable surgical instruments. So I think the good step is to re recognize the fact that these are the processes that are being used. And then make sure you validate it against your, your your cycle. And then I guess the healthcare um, organizations can look at it and say, yeah, that matches my capabilities. So I can rest assured I'm doing the right thing um, in line with manufacturer's instructions. Because you'd be surprised probably how many items would go through the process without actually being in line with the process that the manufacturers would prescribe. Um, and and this, is, this is an important point here. Um, Manufacturers um, are liable, if I can say, for what they are putting on the market and the instruction they are providing. In the case, for example, I suppose the healthcare facility is not following the instruction of the manufacturer and then the product is not good or not well uh, reprocessed or not good enough for that. It's not their fault of the manufacturer, I suppose. No, but I think there's a bit of a disconnect sometimes. I know we specifically talk about surgical instruments, but this issue of what happens in reality and what manufacturers think is happening with the products, there's, there's a big disconnect, there's a big gap. And we see that with any medical product, whether that's a clinical piece of clinical furniture or the CT scanner. I, I know I'm kind of straying from the topic here, but we do joke a lot sometimes that, you know, you can buy a shirt, you know, for five pounds and has more care instructions to make sure it doesn't shrink than, than you know, your medical device. So we're saying that shouldn't be the case. But healthcare are able to absorb all of that noise and say, well, how do we make sure we protect infections? That's why we have IPC themes, et cetera, et cetera. But it, what should happen is that medical device manufacturers work really closely to understand the processes so they can design products and validate IFUs that are actually in line with, with what actually happens. And suddenly you reduce the, you know, the risk of infection, you reduce the risk of, of product failure. Um, I think with reusable surgical instruments, it's a lot more prescribed and it's easier to get it right. For, for any other medical device, a hospital bed, a CT scanner, infusion pump, it's a bit more complex because these products are exposed to, you know, from 70% ethanol to 1000 ppm chlorine. Um, but I think what needs to happen, you should have a conversation, <laughs> you know, with your, with your end user and you should understand their needs and then obviously try and influence the, you know, the, whatever the information you put into a technical file to support what, what actually happens in the real world. Um, exactly. 
Luckily for surgical instruments, there's a standard for sterilization for healthcare products. I think it's ISO 11137, which specifically tells you, you know, what do you need to do for any you know, process, whether that's steam sterilization, whether that's gamma, ethylene oxide, you know, it prescribes you those tests. And then, you know, you know what to do to try and achieve your, you know, your whatever the serenity level, assurance level you want, you want to get. So again, you don't have to go and, and reinvent the wheel, as we say. There's specific standards that you can, you know, so, so, I suppose, apply to your product based on your intended use to try and get the outcome. And I'm pretty sure healthcare would recognize that because one way or the other, they would either use steam sterilization or gamma or ethanol oxide, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not that hard to try and align your IFU with what actually happens in, in real world. Hey, just a second. Do you need a EU, Swiss or UK representative? Then choose Easy Medical Device. We can represent you and also become your importer. Contact us at eo at easymedicaldevice.com. Exactly. And um, if, if we come back to notified bodies um, that are coming here normally to verify that all, all what uh, is mentioned and uh, is, is following the, the, the regulation. So all those standards that you mentioned, for example, they will check, they will maybe check also that and check if this is really uh, uh, available there. So uh, in terms of documentation, for example, so the, I mean, the notified body are checking that the manufacturer is doing correctly. They are also checking that the laboratory is accredited and is really doing yeah. this job also, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's really important. It's really interesting because, you know, a couple of minutes ago, I've mentioned that certain manufacturers would choose to partner with, you know, healthcare organizations, with their sterile departments to say, look, can I just use your process to try and validate the fact that my product is safe? And it's good. In the absence of anything better, I'd say that's a good option. However, what you need to understand is this isn't just pushing, you know, a surgical instrument for a single cycle and saying it's all okay. As a certified or accredited lab, you, you know, you geared up to measure every single parameter. We just spoke about washer disinfection or thermal disinfection, et cetera. You know, we, you do a study where you monitor the temperature to make sure you're able to heat, you know, get these defined parameters that will achieve that level of efficacy. You know, we do a lot of, you know, you'd spike the actual product with a, an organism and then you try and push that for a sterilization cycle to see if it actually died or whether you achieve the log reduction. And that's the evidence that notified bodies would look for specific to your product. We just previously spoke about working out the worst case. Every single device could have a different outcome. So you need to pick your products. You need to make sure you have a baseline contamination level and you validate your cleaning, you validate your disinfection cycle, sterilization cycle, and you have that evidence for your product rather than kind of piggybacking on, on you know, somebody else's process. So I feel when you look at labs, you need to make sure you choose labs that are actually geared up to do that. They have all the right certification or accreditation, the right equipment. So when you get that report, none of the data is missing because it'd be so disappointing to get a report from an SSD department and say, yeah, we pushed it through a process. But what were the cycle parameters? Is it half cycle? Is it full cycle? What was the log reduction? Did you use a BI? What type of BI? You know, you're exposed to so many questions that notifying bodies would ask and say, look, I don't think you have control over this process. And if you don't have control over that process, there's no way you can prescribe the process in the IFU. So it's all left to, you know, it's it's quite subjective at that point. Um, and you sort of at the mercy of, you know, whatever you, you you know you can get from, you know, healthcare organization. Exactly. And uh, this is maybe small mistakes that some manufacturers are doing because it's the first time they have to do, as I said before, with class one. 
they didn't had all those things, even if for me they have to do it anyway. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah, they didn't have, if I can say, the the notified body looking at that specifically. So it was it was maybe yeah. done, but not done correctly. Yeah. Now we have notified bodies looking at that, so they have maybe yeah. more scrutiny on the documentation. Uh, so. Uh, do you have other mistakes that companies are yeah. doing or something that maybe we can tell them, oh, this is one, maybe there is another one here that they are doing a lot? Yeah, I can give you an example. Um, you know, we've dealt with quite a few companies and I think the first thing they say, well, can I do it myself? You know, I have an autoclave or whatever. And we say, yeah, absolutely. There's, if, you know, if you can have you know, enough objective evidence to support, you know, to have, have a meaningful conversation with your notified body to rest assured that what you've done is correct, fine. There's absolutely a reason why you can't do it. However, can you, can you tra track your, you know, your temperature? Can you track all the parameters that you put your, your stamp on to say that they happen? So the first mistake sometimes, I feel that companies underestimate the level of detail they need to have in their reports and the level of objectiveness as well. You know, when you use an independent lab, you know that these guys have the sole interest is to provide objective evidence to make sure the product is safe. Suddenly, when you test your own product, regardless of your QMS system, you're still inclined to make sure it's fine. <laughs> and I think that's something, you know, that you need to be aware of when, when you talk to notifying bodies. It's not unreasonable for you to ask what quality system you have in place to make sure that these results that suddenly you look at are totally objective. So the first mistake is to underestimate the level of detail and, you know, the capabilities you need to have. Um, second of all, you know, interpretation of standards, you know, we'd get customers saying, I just need you to validate the, uh, the sterilization process. Well, we say, no, no, you need to take a couple of steps back. You know, you need to validate firstly, if what you're going to submit into an autoclave is actually clean. So that's why we need to do the whole, you know, we use like something like Edinburgh soil. I'm not a microbiologist, but I listen to the guys in the lab, you know, to make sure that firstly, the products are cleaned automatically or wherever the process before you submit for disinfection. Um, so, so some of the mistakes is that manufacturers suddenly take control over the interpretation of the standard. And as a lab, we're trying to say, no, these are the steps you need to take to get the right results, plus the validation work. We've, we find it sometimes really difficult to explain that if we're spiking your ophthalmic instruments, for example, with you know, a geobacillus spores, we need to value the fact that we can recover it so that you know, if you claim your log six reduction, it's indeed log six reduction. Um, so that's the second mistake where you interpret your own standard and you're set on, I just need that without actually looking at the bigger picture of your risk and benefit file. Okay. Um, and, yeah, and, th and thirdly, I think the risk and benefit file is being overlooked as well. If you've identified there's a risk that this product can fail, you know, after 100 pro process, you know, processes, you should do that test. You can't, you know, you should say at what point you should stop using that. So that's the third mistake where you don't do enough compatibility studies to prove the fact that your product are indeed reusable. So in terms of uh, of of the maybe um, demand that are coming from from the manufacturer, so um, as you as you mentioned those demands like I just need this or I just need that, etc. So are you also as a laboratory here to guide them and tell them be careful of this or be careful of that or you should look also at this or we have other customers that are similar and uh, we have also looked at that. So is there some kind of this consulting or uh, advice part that is provided also by you? Yeah, the approach that we take, we normally tend to talk about that, you know, the case studies or the examples that we've done in the past, like success stories. So, you know, we obviously, our customers are the ones that need to make the decision, but we're trying to provide them with enough information to say, look, what we've done previously for this customer that has a similar product, the similar approach is X, Y, Z. And the reason why we've done it is because if you look at the MDR requirements, if you look at your risk file, 
this information would satisfy as a mitigation action, et cetera. And mo- mo- mostly it's all fine. They take the point, you know, they thank us for that. You know, we don't essentially, essentially position ourselves as consultants, but we understand standards really well. That's our business. That's what we do. And we want to make sure that our reports are rock solid so they would never get stuck with the notifying body. So we feel as if we have to make sure that if we see a mistake, we tell you to say, look, please consider that. And most most likely than not, they go back and consult with the run the regulatory department, et cetera, and say, yeah, I think I think that's fine. So we've seen in the past where they come in with a very small requirement, a very niche, I just need you to do half cycle once. And we say, no, let's do it in triplicate. <laughs> you'll, ha- you'll have an average, you'll have better you know, validation data. And they would be happy to say, yeah, thanks. I think that's a, a good call, so. I think I, th- I think it's great also because uh, mainly yeah if you are if they arrive with a certain demand and you just execute knowing already that it's bad or it's not good or it's not complete uh, can be also I think damaging for you for a laboratory to say oh they are bad because they didn't inform us about this or about that so yeah. I suppose this is also important to show knowledge and expertise for these kind yeah. of things. And I think as a scientist, you know, we sometimes get carried away because we absolutely enjoy what we're doing. Like we can talk for hours about the lab and how fun it is and, you know, whatever organisms. But at the end of the day, what manufacturers need is that report. And that report should give you, you know, your market access. So as much as, you know, it's quite fun because we definitely like to explain the process and to make sure that everybody, you know, kind of on the the same page. But we just want to make sure that our reports are, you know, are, are rock solid. So therefore, we just... We don't want to just to do the thing and then you know that you're going to fail. We want to make sure that you know you do the right thing and you pass the first time. Exactly. One demand that I had some from some manufacturers, and I want to see if you had the same, is, um, uh, for example, um, they have a, a, a line of products and it's uh, the same instrument, but multiple sizes or some instruments that are really complex and some that are really simple, etc. And they said to me, um, can I test only one of it and it will be valid for all the others? So did you have this kind of uh, this kind of uh, of demand? Yeah, I think that's very, very, well, that's not a unique problem because you're probably going to find out that those companies, you know, they already sell these products. You know, they've been in the market for a while. Some of them are, you know, 30 million turnover businesses and they have a portfolio, hundreds, if not thousands of products. So it's not unusual then for them to think, well, how many products do I test? And our, our advice is normally look at your risk file you're probably going to find out if you look at your product portfolio, some of them, some of those products are, you know, quite simple. They're flat, spatulas, et cetera, made out of stainless steel, but some of them are quite complex. So I think it's fine for you to pick most complex products that represent that group of portfolio or your products and then test those. And then you can work with your risk management file to say, well, the reason why we've tested those because they are indeed complex. So I don't have to go and test every single one. I think that would be unsustainable, but assuming they use the same material exposed to the same process, it's a similar process when you choose where do you inoculate. You know, you yeah. choose the worst you know location. So like you look for a hinge or something. Um, so it's not unusual. And I think you're right. When we spoke with manufacturers, they get really spooked about, oh wow, well I have to do all hundreds of my products. So no, pick six, seven, ten. What represents your your portfolio and focus on those. And if you have enough safety data for those, you should be fine with the rest of them. Yeah, and and we as a consultant, I think I worked also for a lot of. Uh, a big um, medical device manufacturer for surgical instruments. And uh, yeah, uh, f- for this, what we are doing is that we are creating a, a worst case uh, product. We tried, I mean, I had the imagination to try to, try to create the, the, the magic worst case product that I can use yeah. for any instruments ever. So I would just have to test that and it should be fine. But yeah, it starts to be a bit complicated with a lot of holes, small holes, big holes, rough yeah. uh, surface, etc. with this thing. So you th- you start to think about that. But at the end, yeah, just 
take the worst first what we are doing is that you are grouping your products uh in things that what they, they are doing on the shape and everything and then from each group you take one that is the worst case for it and then as you said at the end you from 1000 products maybe you you reach with uh with six uh references that are the worst case yeah. and you have to reevaluate this worst case each time you have a new product that is coming uh, on your line of products to see if this is still the worst case or not. so yeah don't worry don't need to test everything you have yeah. a strategy also to reduce that I think it's a really valid point because um, I went to this conference last year. I think it was September last year in Belgium. And um, I've heard this person saying, that, look, there's no such thing as more important medical device. You know, you can't swallow a pacemaker. You need that surgical instrument. But I think so many surgical instrument manufacturers are being put off because they have big portfolios, established relationships, and they just need to see a way out. And I feel there is a way out. There's a process that you can follow, you know, establish what is your worst case, look at your products, you know, find out what's a good representative sample and submit that and you will get your, you know, your certificate in the end. Um, and I think that's the message that we would try to kind of communicate in, instead of just allowing your certificate to expire, um, which is no good for both healthcare, because ultimately, at the end of the day, patient risk is exactly. at hand here. So we need to make sure that we have enough of surgical instruments on the market to make sure we can continue to support healthcare. Exactly. And and I think surgical instruments starts to be also a bit complex uh, because people think uh, when maybe they are not used to that, they think a surgical instrument like just a scalpel, a scissor or whatever. Yeah. But you have some surgical instruments that are really designed ex uh, specifically for a certain implant, yeah. a certain cut on the bone Correct. that will be at this angle for this thing. So it's specifically made for this type of surgery or this type of implant. So these are really complex uh, also devices with a lot of um, things inside which can be uh, a problem. So don't think it just as a scalpel or scissor. There is really a lot of uh, other instruments that, uh, that are really uh, dependent here. Um, Todvidas, so thank you for all those information. So um, if if we want to contact you, so what what exactly, if, if for example, test labs, uh, regarding test labs in the UK, what test exactly are you doing so maybe people can contact you directly? Yeah. So test labs is a UCAS accredited medical device testing laboratory. We're based in the UK, in Peterborough, so not that far away from Cambridge and London. And we specifically focus on RFE validation, whether that's reusable surgible instruments and every single standard I've just spoke about, you know, that's what we've implemented into, into our laboratory. So we're quite niche in what we do, but equally we do a lot of material compatibility studies and whether that's with your stainless steel surgical instrument or more complex devices, or whether that's with your, you know, your CT scan or your infusion pump. I think our primary fo focus is to make sure we ensure this compliant medical device supply to healthcare organizations all over the world. So if you have a problem, if you want to validate your surgical instruments fast, because we, want, we don't want to keep you waiting, we were equipped, we've specifically designed all of those tests and uh, following those standards to be, to be able to produce these results. Um, yes, yeah, so follow us on Test Labs UK um, LinkedIn page or testlabsuk.com, you know, web page and yeah, get, get in touch and we can obviously, obviously support. Sure. And I will put all those information on the show notes. So uh, please go on the show notes and, and just click on the link and you will find all the information. And uh, if you have any question about uh, class one, class one air device or whatever, you can just ping, I suppose, uh, uh, Todd Vidas on, on LinkedIn and uh, and ask him maybe uh, yeah the, the, his advice for maybe your specifications. And I'm sure yeah, he can help you a lot. Um, 
Todvida, so thank you really for, for your support for all the information. I hope, yeah, people will be engaged on that. As I mentioned, there is an extension period uh, for uh, people to uh, continue to be on, on the market uh, as class one. But uh, as I'm always saying, this extension period um, is is important to be uh, managed correctly by the manufacturers and uh, not wait until the end to start to think about how you can move now to the MDR, how you can contact the notified body. So start your process now, start already to, this, uh, to think about it now so that you can be on a good shape when uh, everything will be uh, launched uh, from, from the UMDR side. Um, okay, Todvida, so thank you very much. Uh, thanks for all your support and I wish you a nice day. Thank you, Mir. Bye. Thanks for listening. So if you like this episode, please provide a review on the platform where you are listening to it. And also don't forget to share it with your colleagues. Thank you very much.